Have you ever longed to don the armor of a samurai and charge headlong into glorious battle? Well, I can't help you with that. However, I can offer you a themed t-shirt that will probably serve as a conversation starter with every third person or so. Check out the merch store at ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com for exclusive shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, phone cases, and full-length battle-ready katanas. Just kidding about that last one. Again, I can't help you there. Visit ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com today. Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 6, Episode 18, The Monks of War. The warrior monks of the 1000s and 1100s were the product of the hot-blooded rivalry and bitter feuds that erupted between monastic groups of certain temples. While we cannot pinpoint exactly when the temples started integrating martial orders into their ranks, we have a rough idea of how these groups emerged in the later Heian period. You may recall that Ryogen hired mercenary guards to protect the grounds at Enryakuji Temple on Mount Hiei in 970, and that this had previously been considered the origin of warrior monks, but more recent scholarship disputes that these hired swords were anything other than, well, hired swords. Ryogen also forbade his monks from directly committing acts of violence themselves, so he can hardly be considered the father of martial monks. However, while his hiring of guards is no longer considered the origin of fighting ordinance, it is still considered an important development thereof. Paying armed men for their services probably became prohibitively expensive very quickly, but the need for protection still existed. Thus, at some point, probably the late 900s or early 1000s, the major temples began recruiting unordained religious commoners to protect themselves. These peasant guards are often compared to the lay brothers of Western monastic orders, who similarly supported Christian monastic communities by filling secular roles which their ordinances were typically prohibited from performing. The Japanese coined a word for these holy warriors, Sohei. The word is most often translated into English as warrior monks, though in their earliest stages most of them had not taken monks' vows. The rivalry between the temples of Enryakuji, which stood atop Mount Hiei, and Midera, which sat at its foot, was already a long-standing conflict by the late 900s. However, there were two other temples which would develop their own homegrown armies during the late Heian period, both of which are located in Nara. These were the Grand Temple of Todaiji, which had been the principal temple during the Nara period, and Kofukuji, a Nara temple sponsored by the Fujiwara clan. While Todaiji's influence had declined significantly since the government relocated to Heian-kyo, Kofukuji actually managed to maintain its importance and influence thanks to its connection to the Fujiwara. The Nara schools adhered to the Hoso doctrines, while both Enryakuji and Midera were nominally Tendai, but the conflicts between them weren't really about dogma as much as they were territorial and political. The Daijo Daikan still assigned abbots to these temples, and often influential leaders from one temple would attempt to be named as abbot of the other temples. 
When such a mismatch occurred, the residents of the offended temple would often assemble a mob and march on the capital. Before we venture too far into their tactics against the Daijo Daikon and the effectiveness of these raucous demonstrations, we should talk about affiliation. While Todaiji and Ryakuji, Kofukuji, and Midera were the four primary temple factions, they all maintained networks of affiliated temples and shrines throughout the land. The system was quite similar to the vassalage networks maintained by the Taira and Minamoto samurai clans, and it's certainly not a coincidence that feudalistic patronage seems to be emerging from nearly all corners of Japanese life in the later Heian. Affiliated temples around the nation meant that the Sohei who traveled, perhaps being deployed to another temple in Kanto or Tohoku, could map out safe places to stay and enjoy hospitality along his journey. Sohei, who came from different temples that shared the same affiliation, treated one another with great respect because they were members of the same brotherhood. It is not entirely incorrect to think of these great networks of affiliation as similar to the bonds shared between members of the same order of crusading knights, whether Templar, Hospitaller, or Teutonic knights. The fighting between the major temples sometimes spelled absolute disaster for those affiliated communities which were caught in the middle. Kiyo Mizudera, a serene temple just southeast of Heian-kyo, built around a waterfall which is still believed to have healing properties, was famously raided by monks from Enryakuji and Midera during a period when those rivals allied against Kofukuji and Todaiji. These periodic alliances between temples were usually very temporary, as in, let's work together to assault one of our mutual enemies and then afterward we'll go back to hating each other. Again, these were not, as far as we can see, theological disputes, but were largely based on the identity of temple membership for their ordinance. While the motivations of the fighting monks may seem obscure to us in modern times, it might be helpful to remember that these temples were their homes. Rival temples were a threat to their homes, or so they were told by ambitious leaders who needed their followers to be angry. The primary foe of any given major temple, apart from their fellow major Buddhist temples, was the government. When a temple was unhappy with the government's ecclesiastical appointments, or recognition of their show ends, or the temple's right to remain tax-exempt, the temple leadership would whip up an angry armed mob to march into the capital and support their discontent. We've discussed a few of these angry mobs already, especially the unsuccessful ones which were chased away by Taira Kiyomori, but the temples frequently bent the government to their demands and walked away victorious in their struggle for supremacy. A particularly effective tactic in these skirmishes in the capital was to bring a portable shrine. These were not mere symbolic structures, but were believed to contain an actual deity— the keepers of Japan's indigenous religion had devised various rituals for dividing a deity's essence and providing the newly created kami with a new portable home. While we might today think of a large mob carrying portable shrines as a rather strange and even nonsensical demonstration, its effect on the governing kuge was quite palpable. The fear of being cursed as well as fearing just generally angering the gods led to many incidents in which the invading Sohei left the capital in peace with all their petitions being granted. 
One factor that may have provided some of the motivation for the temple leaders to raise armies against one another and against the government was the eschatological idea of mapo, which translates to the latter days of the law. According to certain Buddhist scriptures, there would come a time when the corruption of the world would spread even to the teachings of the Buddha Sakyamuni themselves, and chaos would grip the planet as people strayed from the Eightfold Path and abandoned their journeys of awakening. According to Japanese Buddhist scholars of the later Heian period, the age of Mapo began in 1052, a year they arrived at after mathematical analysis of the sutras and their general timeline of the Buddha's life, which marked his death at 949 BCE. Because one of the defining features of Mapo was that people would lose interest in the Buddha's teachings, the abbots of Enryakuji, Midera, Kofukuji, and Todaiji may have felt that they had no choice but to engage in violence themselves, lest they be overtaken by heretics and corrupt secular authorities. This end-times loophole is certainly not exclusive to Japanese Buddhism, and it is worthwhile to remember that many other world religions have also excused violent and reprehensible atrocities when their own leaders have believed that they are living in the so-called end of days. While the Council of State absolutely wanted to curtail and even prevent these periodic riots, they also wanted to preserve their own power as the supreme authority in the land. While calling on the samurai to suppress these demonstrations was certainly successful, there was real hesitation on the part of the ruling authorities to engage in outright brutality against the ecclesiastical mobs. Many still believed that killing or harming a monk was taboo, and that the powers of the spiritual world might even be turned against them if they tried. On several occasions, the presence of a portable shrine was used to perform a ritual which called down a curse on the chancellor or some other specific officer of the court whom the monks in question believed was their enemy. While such an action today would likely be nothing more than fodder for viral YouTube videos and TikTok mashups, in the later Heian period, the Council of State absolutely believed that these curses would have a real, tangible effect, and none were eager to put these hexes to the test. Over time, a small segment of the Sohei became fairly proficient with their use of arms. A polearm with a curved blade called a naginata was generally their favorite weapon, and indeed its long reach would likely have been very useful against horse-mounted foes like the samurai when wielded by experienced warriors. Most of those who were classified as Sohei were, in the words of George Sansom, neither warriors nor monks, but rabble. Still, some of the warrior monks toward the end of the Heian period became famous as fearsome warriors. One such Sohei was known as Benkei. Unlike the typical rabble who filled the streets of the capital to protest appointments or demand the restoration of special privileges, Benkei joined monastic life from an early age, traveling among various temples throughout Japan. He was most likely instructed in how to use a naginata as part of his spiritual training, though at 17 he joined a sect of hermits who practiced the ascetic, syncretistic religion of Shugendo, becoming a Yamabushi, a mountain hermit. At this point he was reputed to be two meters tall, a little over six and a half feet, which is taller than average by modern standards, much less Japan in the 1100s. 
Height confers a significant advantage in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and Benkei would eventually decide that it was his mission in life to absolutely dominate the field of melee fighting. The story goes that throughout the 1170s, Benkei would stalk through the streets of Heian-kyo every night, challenging every samurai he encountered to a duel. Benkei saw the samurai as arrogant thugs, and felt it was his duty to knock them down a peg at every opportunity. When he won a duel, he would take the samurai's tachi sword as a trophy, and stories say that his goal was to collect 1,000 of these weapons by defeating that many samurai in single combat. While Benkei likely fought using his trusty Naginata much of the time, he was famously a master of six other weapons. The axe, the rake, the sickle, the tetsubo, which is an iron staff, the nokogiri, which is a cross between a cleaver and a saw, and the hizuchi, which is a wooden mallet. According to legend, he carried all of these on his person at all times, choosing the one that made the most tactical sense depending on his situation. The story goes that his sword collection was nearly complete, and that he needed only one more tachi to reach his goal of 1,000 such blades. He spotted a samurai whom he took for an easy mark, a short warrior whose sword was sheathed in a glittering bejeweled scabbard. Benkei challenged him, and the two agreed to fight on a bridge. Most sources say it was Gojo Bridge, others claim it was Matsubara Bridge, either way they fought on a bridge. Benkei thrust and swiped at his foe, who proved surprisingly agile. His smaller stature made him a difficult target in the dim moonlight, and he parried and countered Benkei's attacks. Benkei ultimately lost the duel, but was not killed. Most likely disarming was considered a winning move in duels of these kinds, and the short samurai with the bedazzled scabbard managed to defeat the massive warrior monk. A furious Benkei arranged to encounter this man again, this time at Kiyomizudera, the temple I mentioned earlier that was built around a waterfall. An epic duel ensued, but eventually the little man with the fancy sword again defeated Benkei, the great champion of warrior monks. For his part, Benkei finally admitted that he was outmatched, and bowed to the superior swordsman, offering to become the man's retainer. That man's name was Minamoto Yoshitsune, the ninth son of the late Minamoto Yoshitomo, the samurai leader on the losing side of the Heiji Rebellion of 1160. Twenty years after that final consolidation of Taira clan power, a serious challenge would arise with the backing of the Minamoto clan of Kawachi, and Benkei would fight alongside Yoshitsune and his brothers. Benkei is kind of a best-case scenario for warrior monks. Both fully warrior and fully monk, he was a competent fighter who consistently proved himself the equal of the samurai. However, most Sohei were little more than armed commoners who knew how to riot and burn things. While they were not the first faction in Japanese history to utilize fire as a weapon of war, they certainly utilized it to great success both against the government and especially against rival temples. Midera Temple at the foot of Mount Hiei was burned down by monks from the summit temple in Ryakuji in 1121 and then again in 1141. The incessant raising of holy edifices was a huge problem for would-be pilgrims who started flocking instead to the Kumano shrines in southern Kansai just to keep out of the crossfire. The Sohei were not generally equals of the samurai when it came to actual armed combat, 
and during those incidents in which the samurai actually crossed swords with the armed temple mobs, the monks typically fled in pretty short order. However, when national battle lines were drawn over the elevation of Emperor Antoku by his grandfather Taira Kiyomori, the temples and the warriors who fought on their behalf would find themselves suddenly being wooed by both the Taira and Minamoto clans. Next time, we will return to where we left off in 1180 and discuss the causes, battles, and major players of a civil conflict known as the Genpei War. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. Thank <laughs> you.